0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your
1: Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, our uh, good world, our good culture—we have uh, something of an addiction going on right now. We could say we're junkies, and, true. and our junk uh, that we're hooked on—satellites.
0: That's right, those eyes in the sky looking down at us. We need them. It's the good stuff. It's the
1: bad stuff. Yep. It fuels
0: every aspect of our life, our phones, our GPS systems, our Internet.
1: Yeah. We, we grow increasingly dependent upon satellites uh, to the point where to really understand all that they provide us with, you have to take them out of the equation. You have to sort of go the, uh, the, go, go the way of, uh, spring fever, that short where the guy wishes that springs didn't exist and, uh, and it coily the, the, the spring comes and says, alright, there are no springs and, uh, and then the world falls apart. Uh, and it, a similar thing happens with satellites. So using this addiction model, uh, a junkie depends on his junk. Mm-hmm. And when that junk is no longer available, perhaps uh, the supplier of said junk has been arrested or um, junkie has run out of money with which to uh, purchase said junk, uh, then things begin to fall into ruin and go into, uh, into into withdrawals. And, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. We're going to talk about what the withdrawals would look like. Should our satellites vanish from the sky?
0: Yeah, I mean, essentially what we're talking about is the day that the satellites died. Yes. And we're going to get there. We're going to talk about what that might look like. But, of course, before we do that, we need to talk a little bit about satellites uh, because they really have changed the face of communication. They've helped us to network in ways that we could have really never dreamed of uh, previous to 1957 mm-hmm. when it was still just an inkling of of the possibilities of what satellite could do for us, what sort of information and data they could provide us with. So you could say as a species... It sort of upped our game in terms of communication.
1: Yeah, definitely. Now, what is a satellite? There's, of course, natural satellites. Uh, The moon is a satellite. It's true, The earth is essentially a satellite. I mean, um, all of this is fair game. But what we're talking about here, of course, are artificial satellites that perform some sort of function for us.
0: Yeah, and I mean, satellite could be a machine that's that's launched into space, and uh, it could be... So massive, such as like say the International Space Station, or it could be a three-pound box that's sent up there for for uh, various data collection.
1: Yeah, it could be something that's doing nothing other than sending a signal back to Earth and saying, "Hey, look at me, I'm in space." Or it could be something that is doing some some really heavy uh, analysis of weather patterns, or even uh, you know analyzing the uh, the, the Earth's uh, gravitational uh, changes.
0: It's true. Um, And it's definitely given us a deeper understanding of Earth. I mean, you had Sputnik being the first satellite that was launched in 1957 by the Soviet Union. And uh, since then, every satellite that has gone up has accumulated more and more data. In fact, uh, now we know what our atmosphere is truly composed of. Satellites. Satellites, absolutely. Uh, The amount of radiation that um, a manned or unmanned spaceflight would have to contend with. So Mm -hmm. this really was the precursor of the space age. It, It allowed us to collect enough information to really plan for, for for flights into space.
1: Yeah, we had to figure out what was out there. We had to uh, we had to do the, all these test runs. We had to, in other words, it's kind of like the anchor that we climbed up that we ascended to uh, begin our space age uh, in earnest.
0: And it did kind of give us this big picture of what the Earth looks like. Because, again, previous to this, we just sort of had an inkling of what the Earth might look like, you know, suspended out there in space. But all of a sudden, you had satellites that were transmitting back data streams that could be converted into colored pictures. And you get this blue marble concept of Earth, this lustrous uh, blue swirl that's just hanging out there. And all of a sudden, we do have a different picture of what it is to be hanging out in the universe.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the spent needles of our dependency. I stole that from you. Uh- but it, I think it's an apt metaphor, because uh, in an addict's uh, home, you may see uh, various uh, uh, signs of their addiction piling up in the corners. Uh, they're even addicted to, say, Twinkies. You'll see Twinkie wrappers just covering every available sur- surface. And if you travel into orbit, you will, of course, find plenty of uh, orbital and suborbital Twinkie wrappers.
0: It's true. There are Twinkie wrappers all over. We've littered them all over the place. Yes, we've gotten our data, and we love it, and we need it, and we will continue to want it. In fact, it's pretty—it's a growing business. Um, but according to Richard Mankiewicz, and he is drawing on data from Celestrack, which is funded by the Center for Space Standards and Innovation, as of December 2012, there are over 13,000 satellites in orbit, and over 20,500 satellites have been decaying since 1957. So he says that if you look at the data carefully, there are just under 3,500 satellites that are both functioning and in their correct orbit compared to nearly 10,000 that are classed as debris, but they haven't decayed yet. So his estimate is that about 75% of the satellites orbiting the Earth are junk.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's easy to fall into the the trap of thinking that they're all going to just uh, eventually re-enter the atmosphere. And, to, you know, eventually is a big word. That's the thing. Um, Sputnik 1, for instance, um, Burned up on uh, January fourth, nineteen fifty-eight. So it didn't stay up there that long. Mm-hmm. But then you have other uh, bits that are that are that have stayed up there for a while and may continue to stay up there for uh, centuries or even decades. Anything above two thousand kilometers, they say, will take a thousand years to return to Earth. Think about that long sense of uh, decay. I mean, in in terms of its usefulness, but the orbit itself will not decay for a thousand years.
0: It's true. And you have a couple of choices when you decommission a satellite. You can move it into uh, a, a, an upper orbit, which yeah. is called the graveyard orbit,
1: because you want it because farther away from from the, the planet, uh, you want to want to get it away from the more useful orbits.
0: Yeah, you want to get it out of the way of basically other satellites. Yeah. So you kick it up there a couple hundred kilometers, and um, this is also known as the L two Lagrange point. So it can hang out there, or and it can decay, or you can move it into lower orbit, and eventually it will. Just move into Earth, and something like ten to forty percent of its mass is going to um, survive reentry. The most of it, though, is just going to blow up. Yeah, upon re-entry. and then
1: there's you know vast stretches of the Earth uh, where it, there's no danger of it actually hitting anybody. If it did, uh, exactly. make it all the way through,
0: right? Because you have to. There are ways to maneuver it into position right. so that it's as safe as possible. So that's a a good indication, as you say, those Twinkie wrappers that the evidence of our our dependency on satellites.
1: Now, what could possibly knock out all the satellites or knock out a majority of the satellites or in some way impact our satellite array uh, in, a, in, a mean, in a way that would actually impact life here on Earth? Uh, there are basically three main scenarios. The first, of course, is a massive solar storm. Um, we've talked about this before. The, the The sun is continually pumping out all of the, these waves, it's pumping out all of this energy, and then it, it undergoes a, a flares and surges, and it's possible for that uh, material to impact the satellites themselves.
0: Yeah, these are called coronal mass ejections, and we're talking about clouds of particles in the form of sometimes, very rare, 10 billion ton ball of plasmas just being ejected out toward the Earth. So... When solar storms hit the Earth in a certain way, it can disrupt our magnetic field, and then that allows for strong electric currents in the upper atmosphere to induce currents on the ground. So that's when you begin to see some sort of failures in our electrical grid happen. yeah, so it will obviously also take out a majority of those satellites. now we'll we'll talk more about um, the plausibility of this later.
1: yeah, but it's definitely the extraterrestrial threat. Right. Satellites. No, right. I mean, not counting an alien attack that wipes them out. Right. I like that one, too. But we kind of have to loop that uh, in, in into the same area.
0: Right. So, yeah, that's one way that we could decrease our stash of satellites here. Mm-hmm. Another is a cyber attack.
1: Yeah, definitely a terrestrial uh, version of, of of the threat and certainly more in line with aliens attacking us, except us attacking ourselves. Uh, there's really not much you have to say about this one as to why it would happen. Hackers attack stuff all the time for varying numbers of reasons, mm-hmm. ranging from uh, you know nationalistic uh, reasons to uh, you know civil rights uh, it, uh, issues or you know what have you. Often just because they can. And uh, we have this, uh, we have all these satellites up there, many of which are are uh, looped into a network. It's on varying levels susceptible to attack.
0: Right, because some of those satellites are are used by the military, mm-hmm. um, and they're they're streaming back data that's pretty sensitive. And so it, it goes without reason that a hacker could want to get into that and and not only access that information, but maybe even decommission that satellite. Uh, the Terra EOS AM1 satellite, which is used to study climate and environmental changes, experienced nine or more minutes of interference in October 2008. And this is according to a draft report by the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. And apparently this has happened a couple times since where some of the satellites have been taken over by cyber hackers. So we know it's possible.
1: There you go. And then, of course, uh, another more or less terrestrial uh, threat to our satellites, uh, space debris, and this just falls back in line again with not only the, the the twinkies but all the other stuff that ends up up there. We talked about space junk in the past. We just have a growing amount of kibble up there in orbit, yes. speeding around at incredible speeds, and when it uh, when they crash into each other, stuff happens.
0: You could also have a killer asteroid here. Yes, take out satellites. Uh, Apophis, which Neil deGrasse Tyson has talked a lot about, mm-hmm. is is one of those asteroids that uh, people are keeping an eye on. Because as he says, um, it is large enough to fill the Rose Bowl. And on Friday, the 13th, April 2029, it will dip below the altitude of our communication satellites. And he says, if its traje- trajectory on that day passes within a narrow range of altitudes called the keyhole... then the influence of the Earth's gravity on its orbit will guarantee that seven years later, in 2036, it will hit the Earth. Now, let's just kind of, you know, look at this in a positive light. He says there's a possibility that it won't reach that keyhole area and and, um, mess with the orbit. But it's something to keep an eye on.
1: Yeah, and certainly another reason that we have to track all of the uh, near-Earth objects that could potentially uh, pose a threat to the planet itself or our satellite array. Um, Now, as far as uh, space debris goes, uh, as far as terrestrial space debris goes, it's also worth pointing out that a lot of these satellites uh, uh, are also explosive. They have fuel on board because they need to have a means of, uh, of going to a higher orbit or descending to a lower one, and therefore there's stuff on there that could blow up. And it does blow up sometimes.
0: Yeah, they do. And they're not supposed to, but the fact of the matter is if you're going to maneuver it into the graveyard orbit, you need some fuel to get it there. Yeah. So it stands to reason that there might be some fuel left over.
1: Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll actually run through some possibilities of how this would break down in, in the course of a day as satellites Uh, blink out in the sky above. All right, we're back, and we uh, are discussing what happens when the satellites fall, what happens when the satellites fail. We have grown so dependent upon them uh, on the data they provide us with, on the, uh, the, on the communications network that they enable around the world. What happens when that goes away? Luckily, uh, there's a wonderful article that we found, uh, that we're going to be uh, referencing here, uh, and it's by Richard Hollingham of BBC titled, What Would Happen If All Satellites Stopped Working?
0: That's right. He actually went to an international conference on space hazards and he listened to a series of speakers outline doomsday scenarios. And so he thought, you know what, To to, a nod to all of those out there who are in charge of space junk and satellite communications. um, I'm going to, like Orson Welles, sort of compose this article about a what-if scenario. What would happen if all the satellites were wiped out? Uh, What would that withdrawal look like?
1: The first thing that he points out is it's 8 a.m on the day that the satellites died. What happens? You go to turn on the television set. There's no Fox and Friends. Where's Steve Ducey? Where are these uh, these familiar faces of the the two men and the blonde lady that uh, that provide us with our morning's uh, joy and news? They're gone. It's just static.
0: There should be a new show called Two Men and a Blonde Lady. <laughs> I'd watch that one. Uh, yeah, email would work and the Internet would seem okay, uh, but your international phone calls would fail. And uh, this this communication systems that ties the world together would begin to unravel. Um, so, as he says, Hollingham Han says, rather than shrinking, it would seem as if the Earth was getting larger. Yeah. I thought that was a wonderful way to put it, because, in a sense, all of those satellites tying us together do give us a, a sense that we have a location that we're, um, there's a center to all of this. But take that away, and it's 1920.
1: Yeah. Uh, a number of, uh, of things that would occur, for instance, uh, drones, military drones flying overhead. They suddenly, their operators lose contact with them.
0: That's right. Uh, as you pointed out, there'd be that loss of television, radio programming, some radio programming. Um, there would be a failure of secure satellite communication systems left uh, for soldiers and ships, and aircraft would be cut off from their commanders and vulnerable to attack.
1: Yeah, and then as they're suddenly find themselves vulnerable to attack, they might think, "Oh, who did this? Uh, I'm close to uh, Nation X. Maybe mm-hmm. I should we should contact Nation X and find out what the deal is." You can't really get in touch with Nation X because the satellites are down, so you end up you're not able to immediately defuse potentially volatile situations.
0: That's true. You have world leaders who are unsure of what steps to take or even what has happened, and also think about those um, airline flights. They're in midair at that yes. very moment. The pilots aren't able to reach anybody. Uh, they know that something is awry. And then the passengers would be completely oblivious.
1: Yeah, They would just be happily oblivious on the plane uh, while the the pilots are trying to figure out how they're going to land and where they're going to land these things. Um, Meanwhile, down below, uh, you're going to have, without satellite phones, you're going to have container ships in the Arctic, fishermen in the China Sea, aid workers in the Sahara, all of them just suddenly isolated from the rest of the world. This one electronic lifeline that they had is suddenly cut off from them. Um, Now... As you said, email's gonna to continue to work, internet's gonna to seem to work okay, but, uh, international phone calls are gonna start failing. If you've gone into work that morning, your, you know, email's gonna still work alright, but if you had a, a call with somebody in the UK, a call with somebody even, uh, uh, across the country, you're not necessarily gonna be able to make any contact with them.
0: Now at 11 o'clock, Hollingham says that we need to start thinking about how our infrastructure is held together by time. He's saying from time stamps on financial transactions to the protocols that hold the Internet together. Uh, he says when these packets of data pass between computers and they get out of sync, the system starts to break down. And then without accurate time, every network controlled by computers is at risk. This Which falls means back, about everything.
1: Yeah, this falls into in line with some of the stuff we talked about in our our nature of time and, and clocks episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were talking about how. There are individuals out there who say we, we really need to have like an Earth time, a solid Earth time. And even though we don't have that in place, we essentially have it, or at least our machines essentially have it in their ability to sync everything together and, and look at it in a given timescape. And as the uh, the satellites break down here, um, Hollingham is, is, uh, is stating that you would see the cracks appear and then the cracks yeah. grow larger. Suddenly, all those lines on the map, Um, suddenly makes sense again in terms of what time it is here versus what time it is there. Uh, A drift begins to occur.
0: Right, and that just reminded me about the time dilation that's built into the algorithms for satellites Mm -hmm. when when they're trying to sync everything together. So, yeah, as you say, this drift begins. He says the first power cuts would come later in the evening as uh, transmission networks struggled to balance the demand. And he says computerized water treatments, uh, they would have engineers switching to manual backup systems. Mm-hmm. And then in major cities, traffic lights and railway signals would be defaulted to red. So all of a sudden, you know, you really yeah. get these very obvious signals that the world is out of whack.
1: So, so the traffic is just going to come to a standstill or mm-hmm. North, it's, it's going to be a quagmire and, uh, and people are going to have tr- trouble getting to and from work that day.
0: Then your phone service which was already kind of acting patchy would finally fail in the late evening. So when you take away the phone, then you begin to cut the lifeline off of people here. That's when you begin to really see that this is uh, a very serious situation. Um, which and s-
1: meanwhile, our web searches are growing slower and slower. <laughs> for real that's that's another thing that, is, that starts to happen
0: well because that's the interesting thing about those information packets right because if you take down a satellite that's um that, that's influencing some internet connections that internet connection will find a different route mm-hmm. to get that information to you but as the system continues to fail across the board it has fewer and fewer resources or areas to connect to and that's where you begin to see um the, the internet and email begin to fail in a, in a very big way
1: all right. 1,600 hours.
0: All right. Obviously, aircraft have been grounded at yes. this point. Yes. And hopefully know
1: anybody in the air, has actually, they've actually landed they've, somewhere they've at this they've point.
0: They've landed. But if they're not, if they haven't landed, uh, they don't have access to the information that there could be some severe weather going on.
1: That's right. We really grow to, to depend upon uh, accurate uh, understandings of what the weather is doing now. Certainly, our prediction uh, models uh, continue to improve and have a a fair amount of room for improvement but we really grow to depend upon this this accurate snapshot of what the weather is doing now providing us with some some rather dependable data about what it's going to do in the immediate future and that that affects everything from uh from what is the storm system doing that might turn into a hurricane mm-hmm. uh, as to what storm systems uh, may be in the, in the path of a given flight So, how are you going to get them to the airport uh, when you don't know what kind of storm systems may be in the path?
0: And you take it for granted, right? Because everybody has heard that message that comes on with the the pilot says, Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we are approaching uh, some patches of uh, turbulence. We're going to take it down uh, a couple thousand. uh," You know, and they don't have that information. They are flying right into Mm -hmm. the eye of the hurricane or or to some other storm. And as a result, uh, you know, you're going to be jostled around and assuming that you could survive that, because I'm sure that there are many instances that a flight could go through this under a storm and survive it, uh, you're still going to have passengers who are
1: severely injured. Yeah. And then what if you have to land in Nebraska and then you're, you're there forever? You're- because there's <laughs> no taking back off again because the it's satellites true. are down. How are you going to have to walk, I guess? You're in that cornfield Yeah, forever. you can't take a train. It's true.
0: Uh, but at least you've landed presumably safely.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Now, on the other uh end of the world, you have travelers who are stranded thousands of miles from home. now we saw some of this at play at least in the grounding of flights with nine eleven
1: yes and then again too uh for a very limited amount of time with the uh, volcano uh, eruptions right uh, in uh, Iceland. Yep. people who grow to depend on uh on pr- a pretty systematic international travel and suddenly there's a halt, and people are just stuck somewhere
0: right and y- communication is completely out so mm-hmm. you you have um survived this harrowing journey on the plane and you're in nebraska in the cornfield or you're sitting somewhere on the other side of the world wondering what's going on with your friends and your families
1: yeah all right 2200 hours uh, things are beginning to look uh look pretty grim and, uh, and again it's not even a whole day that's passed yet in this scenario uh that uh, that the author lays out here so communications transport power computer systems all been severely disrupted global business is ground to a halt uh, and it's reaching the point where uh, leaders and organizers are having to worry about food supply chains.
0: Yeah, because y- your food supply chains would begin to break down there. And people are going to panic. And they are going to try to get their food supplies for themselves built up. I imagine that you begin to see some looting at this point. Yeah. Because, again, you have uncertainty. And, uh, you know, there's, there's the point that this is the actual complete systems failure yeah so in the void of information chaos begins to reign
1: yeah uh, for instance suddenly we can't monitor um, illegal logging in the Amazon or you know so it's suddenly uh, you can just go out and cut down whatever uh, then it's also this is brought up in another article but uh, GPS uh, technologies used to uh, uh, used often by farmers nowadays to track where their cows are mm-hmm. suddenly these cows just can roam wherever they want and also uh, Thirty rock viewers think back to Tracy Jordan and his uh, his, his ankle band that uh, that keeps him from leaving his house. Suddenly, everyone that is on house arrest with their uh, with their electronic GPS bands, they're free to just roam the streets and do whatever. But more to the point, civil unrest as uh, food supply chains grow uncertain and uh, and uh, those in power having to uh, uh, in- introduce emergency measures to maintain order. So in the course of just Uh, you know, under a day, we've already descended into uh, kind of a new dark age.
0: Yeah, I mean, we haven't even really extrapolated that to to what it might mean, you know, weeks from that period, because you would have backup generators at nuclear power plants that would have run down, and the electric pumps that supply water to cooling ponds where radioactive spent fuels are stored would shut off. So within weeks, you would really begin to see um, the entire infrastructure crumble And what would that mean? I mean, in terms of dollars, it would be, I I don't even think you could put a price on that, but um, a rebuilding effort would take years with that sort of full-scale wipeout of satellites.
1: Yeah, because, again, we've built this system kind of piece by piece, uh, an elaborate system that we've grown to depend on absolutely. Yeah. And if that's, and if that's taken away from us, if, if that fails due to uh, some sort of uh, extraterrestrial accident or t- terrestrial accident or terrestrial attack, then uh, the consequences uh, could be pretty dire.
0: Okay. So if you're feeling a little bit freaked out, just rest assured that this is highly unlikely that every single satellite would be wiped out in one fell swoop. Right. So yeah, we, the, the, um, coronal, mass ejections are, they're they're a problem, right? Because every once in a while they do mess with the electromagnetic field and they do disrupt some uh, satellites. But uh, you would really have to have a doomsday wad of plasma coming at you. And some people say, hey, we're about due because something like in 1859 there was something called the Carrington event in which a huge ball of plasma came shooting at the Earth. And um, so that was a really powerful coronal mass ejection, and it overloaded the telegraph wires, actually setting paper messages on fire.
1: Wow. So uh, imagine what it would do then to all of our uh, various electronic devices.
0: Yeah, but you can take comfort in knowing that for the most part, uh, you know, these ejections sort of shoot out harmlessly into other parts of the solar system, and they tend not to hit Earth.
1: Yes. And space is big, and uh, the the chances of, of us being right there in the bullseye, pretty slim.
0: Yeah, and then in terms of you know cyber hacking, to have a across the board concerted effort that would take down every single satellite would would be I would say incredibly hard to pull off.
1: Yeah, I'm not going
0: to say impossible though.
1: No, but the idea of like uh, like a sole individual or even just a a few individuals uh, carrying out such a massive hacking um, coup—it's just uh, it's it's not likely.
0: And I have to say, in that instance, that would definitely be cutting off your nose to spite your face if you are a cyber hacker. Because what do you have left to hack after that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I could see where somebody could, you know, where that would be their aim. You know, maybe your your whole thing is you want to expose the uh, the vulnerability of our right. satellite dependency. Maybe you you want us to go cold turkey. You realize we've got a problem. So what you're doing is you're going to take all the Twinkies away from us and then teach us some tough love. But. But still, the, the chances of it happening are probably pretty slim. The chances of it of them being able to carry it out are pretty slim.
0: Right, or maybe you're just trying to get one million dollars.
1: Yes, maybe and that's your so. way of saying, maybe like, so. that would "I be-
0: will restore satellite functionality." Exactly.
1: That would, would be a great Bond uh, movie. Uh- uh, plot, but like all great movie uh, Bond movie plots, it doesn't necessarily match up with reality.
0: True, and space junk, uh, space debris, asteroids. Again, you'd have to have something that would wipe out every single satellite. Would be difficult to do.
1: It would have to be like the ultimate uh, pool crack shot, you know, where uh, you know where the where they're just able to sink all the balls at once. <laughs> uh, it's just, and there are a lot of balls up there, so it, it would it would be rather difficult to pull that off.
0: It would be. That'd be a lot of trigonometry there. Left pocket, right yeah. pocket,
1: left pocket. So there you have it. Um, I, I think it's it's fascinating to look at this data and to, and to really think long and hard about our dependency on technology, uh, what vulnerabilities are there. It reminds me a lot of uh, Stephen King's short story, Trucks, but more to the point, Stephen King's movie adaptation, his own movie adaptation, uh, Maximum Overdrive in which all the vehicles and the electronics and, and all, all of man's technological devices uh, rise up uh, and, and, and revolt and start running him over.
0: At which point I said, oh, yeah, that kid's movie, Cars.
1: Yeah, well, it's, right? kind, of, it's kind of like Cars, except with more... Uh, yeah, except less believable, I guess is the thing. Uh, cause it was, it's a rather silly movie. I love the short story. The, the movie is, is just, is, is wonderful in its own right, but very silly, but it, but it gets down to some of the same stuff here. We grow to depend upon all of this, uh, the, these, these artifacts that we've created, and then what happens when they fail us? What happens when they turn against us? Or that, that is, quit obeying us altogether.
0: Well, one of the things that that I won't go too deeply into because it it could be a podcast episode unto itself, but the fact of the matter is that U.S. satellites are in rapid decline and there are very few plans to replace them. And some of this has to do with um, governmental red tape and some of it just has to do with budget cuts. But uh, the fact of the matter is is that we will begin to see a, a huge decline in the amount of satellites. And some of those satellites are weather satellites. And we'll have to start to depend on other countries for that information. And moreover, there may not be as sophisticated um, satellites going up or satellite information coming back at us. So, again, that's for another doomsday scenario. But uh, it's probably worth mentioning as we uh, extrapolate what satellite might mean to us in 50 years.
1: All right. Well, let's call the robot over. And uh, assuming that the satellites still work, then the robot should be able to uh, provide us with some listener mail. All right. So we uh, recently did an episode about uh, cubicles, cube death. Open floor office plans, and we received a lot of replies from people that that do work in cube farms. Uh, several of which mentioned that they'd listened to our podcast on the way to work and were very depressed rolling into their uh, their cubicles that oh, morning. So I worry about that. And we received a lot of cool emails from people where they're just laying out what their workspaces. But this one I think is uh, is, is worth reading uh, and sharing with everyone because it provides kind of a a, a possibility of hope for anyone in a cube environment. Uh, So we uh, heard from Joseph. Joseph writes in, uh, and he's from Jonesboro, Arkansas, writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. Touching on the last two podcasts, while at my day job, I work in a five-by-four work uh, area cleaning screens used for screen printing. The only way I keep from going insane is drink a bunch of coffee, Listen to loud music or stuff to blow your mind and use the ink from the screens to paint the wall behind me. I have painted the whole <laughs> wall and need suggestions on what to do next. Uh, and he sent a picture with this, too, where it's like all these different like cubes and then some like red handprints as well. And it looks really, really cool. Uh, and I think that that's just one uh, cool idea. If your uh, employers allow you to do everything you can to transform that workspace into some sort of a personal uh, space that means something and is beautiful
0: yeah I mean some self-expression going on there I yeah. don't think we could get
1: away with that with the painting yeah I don't know we could get away with a lot I think at this point
0: well, we don't I mean <laughs> we don't really have a paintable surface in our cubes. every
1: surface is paintable right, That's so now
0: I, you're you're breaking out the fabric paint here
1: no every, yeah every, every surface is paintable you okay can, yeah I think it could work all right yeah uh as for suggestions about what to paint um I, I, don't know. I mean, I, I, feel like his aesthetic is kind of, uh, you know, abstract and minimalist. So I, I, don't feel like I can suggest, hey, why don't you paint a squid attacking a boat? Cause boat, cause that's not really what he's doing. But, um. But
0: what about a concept? Like love. Or time.
1: Yeah. Or a particular place, a particular uh, vista. I remember in, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Remember Hannibal Lecter is painting like scenes of Florence in his cell. I remember like he paints a window, uh, looking out. So you could always do that. It's true. <laughs> um. But but no, uh, uh, yeah, I think think the important thing about uh, about your cube is to is to give it some sort of personality, make it a little less dreadful, and uh, and and more to the point, uh, get out of it whenever you can. Go out for a walk, go smell some dirt, as we discuss in the uh, other episode from that week.
0: Oh, that's right. That that dirt is highly important uh, for your body to try to actually fortify itself against the world, strengthen itself.
1: All right, let's hear from one other uh, listener. Rachel writes in uh, and says, Robert and Julie, I was listening to some older episodes when I heard your episode on Finnish education. Wow, what a fascinating educational system and podcast. I played it for my 13-year-old daughter, who now wants to move to Finland. She had a project this past school year for seventh grade called Do Something, in which she had to do something about an issue she felt strongly about. Isabel created a survey about homework and had 50 kids take it. She found that the amount of homework correlated to the average income in the town and the graduation rate. She studied those results and then wrote a letter to the president, secretary of education and governor, superintendent and principal. She has heard back from our governor, but no one else. Isabel's conclusions match a lot of what Finland has implemented. I'm uh, inserting her letter now. Thank you for continuing to give us great discussion topics. Rachel.
0: And that letter is beautifully written, and it makes the point so well about how teaching needs to be done in the schools, and kids need to be supported in schools. And you can't just rely on the families to essentially enhance the learning for a child, because what she said is that if you look at the study and you look at the, the informal study that she took, that it does correlate with this idea that families that are living in um, higher socioeconomic brackets are Able to provide more opportunity outside of school for, for, for better learning. And again, her point is really well taken that the learning should take place in school. Yes. And I was just, I have to say, um, really inspired by that and, and very impressed. And now I feel like I should do something.
1: Excellent. Well, mission accomplished then. Indeed. All right. Well, uh, as for the rest of you, if you have something you would like to add, uh, we would love to hear from you, uh, be it about a past episode. Those are always up for a discussion. Or if you have something you want to share about uh, satellite doom scenarios, uh, about our dependency on satellites. But how prepared are you for the loss of satellites? How would it impact your life? Uh, you know, I, I couldn't help but think about that as we were uh, preparing this, uh, this podcast episode. I started sort of thinking, like, how much food do I have in the house? Um, not enough. To, to survive uh, this kind of scenario, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think that if you look at the sort of scenario a year out, you, you will see that there is a measure of stability that, that comes online with people. Yeah. But
1: It wouldn't be Cormac McCarthy's The Road, like, the next day.
0: No, but you would, you know, a year, year out, you would be living an entirely different life that was probably more community-driven uh, because that's when you really began to see that the human species has been so successful because of the cooperative effort. It's yeah. not rugged individualism that has uh, allowed us to to take our position in the world.
1: Yeah, and what would happen to the last season of Mad Men? Would we ever get to see it? Oh man! Or would it would it just be like a story that would be told in different towns, like, a, like John Hamm would travel around uh, from village to village with a with a bindle stick, and he would he would tell you the the tale of the final season of Mad Men.
0: That would be pretty great. Uh, yeah, I was about to say there there would probably be some sort of myth making going on about yeah. what happened. So.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, so where do you find us? Uh, all the usual places. You go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our main website. That's where we throw everything we do. Uh, you can find us in social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Tumblr. Stuff To Blow Your Mind on both of those. And on Twitter, we go by the handle BlowTheMind.
0: And you can also drop us a line at BlowTheMind at com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. look <laughs>